there, dishheads. Me again. I apologize for, well, I don't apologize really for taking Thanksgiving off. I've had a rough, a rough 10 days. I, I took the Thanksgiving holiday to go home to England and to finally do the memorial for my father who died just, just as COVID began of a horrible accident. And, and also to check in with my mom, who is declining pretty fast, unfortunately. And it was a tough time. And then I also have managed to get some bug on the way in London back to the US. And I hope I make it through the next 48 hours. Who better to talk about this, my general susceptibility to all sorts of viruses, than our guest today, who I've really admired for a very long time. His name is Kyle Harper. He's a historian who focuses on how humanity has shaped nature and vice versa. He's a professor of classics and letters at the University of Oklahoma and the author of several books, including The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire, and his latest, Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History. Now, just a couple of words about those two books. The first was incredibly helpful to me in understanding when I wrote an essay about plagues a couple of years ago for New York Magazine. I think it's easily the most interesting contribution to understanding how Rome managed to lose its grip than anything I've read since Edward Gibbon. And I know that's high praise, but he deserves it. And if you have not read Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease in the Course of Human History, which is out this year, do yourself a favor, maybe over the Christmas break. It's a big book, but it reads like a dream. It's, it's beautifully done. You don't realize how fast you're going through the centuries. And what better moment, really, as COVID seems to be in retreat, to talk about the history of plagues, how they have interacted with us as humans, how we have created the possibility of plagues, and how, having read these books, I am... Um, and we'll talk about this later on, uh, incredibly gloomy about the fate of mankind. It seems to me we are basically on a ticking time bomb here, and we will see if it goes off in our lifetimes. Carl, thanks so much for coming on the Dishcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really touched by your, your kindness and honored to be here. Great. Tell me, to start with, what was the first plague? And how would you define a plague? Well, we, we have no idea what the first plague was because plagues are, are a part of nature. And when we were forest-dwelling, tree-inhabiting primates, we would have had plagues. And every step of our evolutionary history, we've been stalked by little microbes that, that take advantage of us, just like any other organism, just like any other animal. So plagues are as old as humanity and older, but they're a really important part of our history. And humans really do have a, a very different kind of disease pool and a very different kind of history with, with plagues. A plague, a plague in English, plague is a funny word because it has two meanings. One is just an epidemic. It just means a pestilence, an outbreak of a disease, and it can be any any disease caused by any infectious microbe. We also sometimes use the word plague to mean the plague, which is a specific disease caused by a very specific bacterium, Yersinia pestis. It's the germ that causes bubonic plague. 
And the reason why we sort of use it just to mean that disease sometimes is because it is the most wild, extraordinary, explosive disease in the human past. So hopefully we'll we'll come back around and talk to it. It's a very weird disease, but plague can either just be an outbreak or it can be that specific disease outbreak. Right. And why on earth and how did you come to be interested in this grim, weird topic? Tell, tell me how you, where you grew up and what were your sort of formative influences? What was, where, did, where were you born and, and where did you educate yourself? It is a it is a grim weird topic. I'm I'm not a grim weird person. I'm maybe a weird person, but not not a grim one. Even though I do like to talk about plagues, I'm I'm at the University of Oklahoma, which is a wonderful place, and it's a particularly wonderful place for me because I grew up here. So I'm a native of the Southern Plains. Grew up in Oklahoma. Went to college at OU, which is just one of the typical classic great American big public universities. And it really changed my life. Uh, it was a wonderful education and totally changed what I wanted to, to become. And I didn't know that you could be a professional historian. That wasn't, that was never a, a dream of mine growing up. I didn't know that was something that people did. But when I went to, to college, I ended up in a, in a class and it was a Roman history class. And it was a transformational experience. I just, I can only describe it as falling in love. I didn't know you could learn the past in such an exciting way. I didn't know it was so relevant. And uh, ultimately the the teacher in that class became a, a role model. And I ended up going to graduate school sort of on his mentorship and advice. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just the the power of, of teachers and the power of ideas can really be life-changing. And I was very lucky to to get a great education at a public university. Yeah. And and in Oklahoma, of all places, I mean, when you say you fell in love, that's such a lovely way of describing the intellectual life. I mean, as Plato talks about this, that there's a kind of romantic, erotic longing for the truth that kind of is the wellspring of human learning. And it's it's fascinating to see see that in you. But well, let me go to the uh, the origins, because you said something that, Plagues have been around for as long as humans. But as I understood it, and from your books, in fact, when we were pretty closely together as tribes, we didn't really move around very much. The plagues were far less common, obviously, because they just couldn't transmit widely. And because we were used to and grew evolved around certain microbes and, and parasites that we, through the millennia, grew resistance to. So, so explain to me exactly how that distinction works. Well, so think think about nature, and I always try and think about humans by starting from the the principle that we are we're part of nature, and we we aren't something so different and set apart that that we should think of our own history in completely different terms. So think think of nature, think of chimpanzees. They're our closest living relative. We used to have other relatives. We mostly killed them off, but chimps are the closest thing we have to, to a living cousin, they have infectious diseases. They have, even they have disease outbreaks, but they can't get really that out of control because there's just not that many chimps. They, they live in very small groups. They don't have cities. You know, they don't have roads and, and air travel networks. And so when a disease outbreak happens, it's sort of naturally limited. And that's true of most organisms in nature. But humans are different. We have this really 
strange eventful history where we transitioned from being hunters and gatherers to farmers. So originally all humans are hunter gatherers. That means that we lived in tiny little groups of people relative to, to what we're used to today. There's no cities. We move around on foot. We don't have horses, much less cars and railroads and steamships and airplanes. And so when we lived like that, we had disease outbreaks, certainly, but they're sort of self-limited. They just can't you know, keep going because they run out of fuel. They run out of human hosts to take advantage of. So when we transitioned to farming, when we built cities, when we built transportation networks, when we developed new technologies that, that allow us to, to raise food and, and multiply our population and become more and more closely interconnected, that changes the, the limits that our germs have as well. So our own very, very strange eventful history ultimately is also the history of our pathogens. So our success was part of the problem that our ability to move around, to multiply our intelligence with respect to other animals and mammals was so great that we created pathways for these new pathogens to, to spread, even though the pathogens are always there. I mean, one of the things one feels from your book is that this is not our planet. We're, we're one species that came along at one point. Microbes and parasites and pathogens have been here forever they will be here when we've gone, and we've kind of been prodding at them with a kind of stick now because of our geographic expansion, because of our, our ability to connect across oceans and the creation of large groups of, of populations. So what would you call the first time the pathogen really broke out to create what you would think of as a, the first recognizable plague? Oh, it's a, you put it very well. And it's a great, it's a great question and a kind of hard one. And we know that there are, there are plague outbreaks before we have written documents. And so one of the cool things that's going on now is that we're starting to, to learn about the deeper history of human pandemics, even in parts of the human past, before we'd invented writing, before there are written records that tell us about it. So one of the, the really interesting and important examples is the disease that I mentioned at the beginning, the plague, Yersinia pestis. We now know, we didn't know this five or six years ago, that there were outbreaks of plague 5,000 years ago. So this is before we have any written descriptions of plague outbreaks. And we know this because of archaeology, because of human skeletons that have been studied by specialists in both archaeology and genetics who can go in, they, they go into the, the tooth cavities and scrape out you know, remains from inside the dental cavity and then put it into genome sequencers. So the same kinds of tools, if you've ever done one of the ancestry.com or 23andMe, they're sequencing your genome. The same basic technology is being used to understand diseases, including the DNA of pathogens from thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's been a little bit of a surprise that this terrible disease, bubonic plague, is a part of human history going back at least 5,000 years. So we, we've learned about this kind of prehistory of our diseases. So plague is one I would say. 
The others, you know, that you'd have to, to mention are diseases like tuberculosis, but particularly malaria. So malaria, if I had to answer your question, malaria, which is a terrible parasitic disease spread by mosquitoes, it's a disease that infects a lot of animals and particularly a lot of primates, a lot of apes. It's a, usually a, a tropical or subtropical disease. And so from the very beginnings of, of human history, we can really infer that our ancestors must have been suffering from outbreaks of malaria. So these really nasty diseases like malaria plague, we're, we're kind of starting to, to figure out that they've been around and infecting our ancestors for a long, long time. Do we know how widespread that was? Because I, from one tooth, it's, 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 it's hard to tell if one person died, or is, do you now have enough data to see that, in fact, this must have been more widespread than a handful of people, that it was really an epidemic? Well, that's a, that is a really hard question. And it's, it's one of the things that a lot of us sort of in the, the academic field are debating. And sometimes it's, it is hard when you don't have a whole lot of evidence, but it's this new kind of evidence. It's very exciting. And so it's easy to, to get excited and to, to say, we have this, this new smoking gun. So plague must've been really important. And the, the truthful answer is that in many cases, we can't really say yet, but it sort of puts us on the, puts us on the trail. So there are people who've said, look, you can't make too much of the fact that you're finding the, the bubonic plagues DNA and these, these ancient skeletons, because it's only one skeleton. One of my colleagues has a very good rejoinder to that, which is if you found an extraterrestrial buried in say early medieval England, archeologically, you wouldn't say, well, it's just one alien. <laughs> you would say, we found an alien. That's amazing. And we know there must have been others. And how did it get here? What was it doing? So we're still, this is a new science. We're still in many ways in the, in the early days. And we'll, we'll learn a lot more. But we're still in a, in a phase where nearly everything that's discovered is, is interesting and exciting. I'm sorry to stomp on your, uh, <laughs> to ask those sort of horrible questions about, well, how do you know? But I've, obviously, yes, these things don't exist in isolation. What's the first time in human history someone we we can find out someone who responded to plague that because i'm just trying to imagine how people would react when some suddenly for reasons they're not quite they don't understand a whole bunch of them start dying of something yeah. what what was where, where in in history prehistory do we get the first intimations of how humans responded well it goes back to the to the earliest literature, Babylonian, Egyptian, Greek. Think of the Greek example, which is the one that I, I know best. The earliest Greek poem is Homer's Iliad. What is the first scene in the first work of Greek literature? It's a plague. The Greek armies are, are on campaign in the Trojan War, and they experience a disease outbreak, which must have been pretty common for, for armies because you have a bunch of guys who are sometimes not well-fed, living in terrible conditions, close cramped together. And it's the very first scene of, of Western literature. And what do they do? They sacrifice animals to the god Apollo. And for many ancient cultures, plagues are, above all, they're not something to be explained by science or biomedicine. They're religious. They're a sign of the god's anger. And so this is a very long, very enduring way of thinking about pestilence, that it's a punishment from the god or gods who must be angry. 
So what you need to do is you need to propitiate the gods. You have to do something like sacrifice animals in order to make the gods' anger go away. So you see the Greeks doing this. You see the Romans doing this. You see medieval people doing this. You still see people responding to, to plagues in this way. But at the same time, already in the ancient world, you start to see what we might call rational or scientific ways of trying to think about plague. They don't have modern science. They don't have germ theory. They don't have microscopes. They don't understand infection the way we do. But there are attempts to try and think of the causes of disease in rational terms. And so already Greek doctors like Hippocrates are thinking about how do you, what causes disease outbreaks and what do you do to, to try and stop the disease from spreading? And so he's doing things like trying to fumigate the air. So to, to sort of smoke out diseases from the air, because they don't think of microbes infecting you. They think of sort of the air getting corrupt and making all the people in a city get sick. So it's, it's pretty fascinating, even if maybe the, the foundations of the way he thought about disease are wrong. Really, the, the idea of approaching it rationally and trying to, to respond to the, to the root causes are already there thousands of years ago. It's interesting to me that nonetheless, there's some deep psychological impulse to think, what did I do to deserve, what did we do to deserve this? What God did we offend? What act did we commit? I remember Pat Buchanan declaring in the 80s that homosexuals have declared war on nature and nature has had its revenge. As if nature existed to ex expel homosexuals from the planet. And so it's incredibly common. And I have to say, I, I personally, when I got one of those, I also felt guilt somehow. It, it, and it seems as if that's also a phenomenon of this, that, that people kind of internalize this and think, there's some personal responsibility for being sick. No, I think that's that's absolutely right. There's something just in the human psyche that that needs to explain things. And I think it was probably stronger when you didn't have microscopes and when you didn't have germ theory, because when you don't have a really thorough, empirical, scientific explanation, it's even there's even stronger impulse to moralize it and to blame someone, whether that's internal, whether, whether people blame themselves or external. And both of those clearly happen. I mean, it's very common to see scapegoating, you know, who do you blame this disease on? And this goes back as far as we can record. It's very common to, to blame minorities or outgroups for being the cause of, of disease outbreaks. But in the 19th century with Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch and modern microbiology, even though we understand so much about the, the root causes of infectious disease, you still see this very powerful psychological impulse to moralize and politicize it in ways that are maybe deeply rooted, but, but clearly aren't helpful. And so, yeah, if it's, if it's the, the AIDS pandemic or COVID-19, I mean, the, the, the need to, to blame somebody for for having caused it is a clearly still a, a temptation that that we grapple with today even though we know so much more about the existence of, of microbes than our ancestors did one of the things that haunted me about native americans when they confronted suddenly the 
probably the wor- the most devastating plague in terms of its 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 impact on the human population when Europeans arrived in the new world they did the usual things they did the rituals to appease the gods they 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 attempted to use all the mechanisms they used to use i mean they used to freeze themselves or put themselves in saunas then jump into freezing water and after a while as soon as i read that they they interpreted the inability their inability to actually stop this as a function of the european superiority maybe their gods were the wrong gods and so they had this extraordinary crisis of identity right i mean i think it's it's always unsettling for for a society to to go through the the trauma of mass sickness and death and i mean think think about covid-19 which is clearly a crisis and traumatic and for people who passed away or were close to to the million americans that that passed away it's it's a deeply affecting experience how much more so in in the past when the mortality tolls were almost unimaginably higher so think of the 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 trauma and challenge of going through covid-19 where the the population mortality rate is something like a a third of 1% whereas in the in the past in some of the historic plagues the the death toll could be a quarter of the population even up to a half of the population in the bubonic plague outbreaks in some of the new world disease outbreaks that you're talking about in the the aftermath of Christopher Columbus and European arrival that could kill 10 20% of of the population of huge areas in the space of a few years at times think of the the trauma that that must have had for our ancestors where the death tolls are just unimaginably higher uh, you know a fifth of the people that you know can just be gone and you don't have a good scientific explanation for it you have to interpret it in terms of the cosmos or religion it can be very unsettling and can can cause crisis of of confidence in cultural beliefs or religion and i think that's been a really important part of the human experience and if it's just been 10 to 20% over a few years and you compound that over the decades you're living in communities where all the houses are empty you're living in cities that are desolated suddenly you, you your entire environment is extraordinarily different the trauma involved in that is just almost impossible to understand as someone who's had chronic disease my whole life i was a really bad asthmatic for a very long time still am it's i i i have a very i just have a very personal response to this subject <laughs> and because obviously i went through a really traumatizing plague myself and watched so many of my friends die I'm fascinated by how how humans respond to this kind of event. It's overwhelming because for me the sense of helplessness is what's so powerful. When I hear about you know what happened in Constantinople when people just started dropping dead in the streets is that the first 
really documented moment of plague? It's what you're what you're referring to, I think, is the really vivid, powerful descriptions we have of the arrival of bubonic plague in Constantinople in the middle of the sixth century. And we know that there are big disease outbreaks of various kinds before that. And we have some amazing descriptions. I mean, as a classicist, I'm of course required to, to point out that Thucydides very famous description of the plague in Athens, almost a millennium before you're talking in 430 BC is such a, I mean, it's an unforgettable description of the the spread of a disease, but also the the grip that a disease comes to hold over a society in the throes of this kind of terror that you're describing. So the the outbreak of bubonic plague in Constantinople isn't the first. There are a few before that 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 would be candidates for pretty unforgettable descriptions. Tell, but tell us tell us what how what Thucydides described. Well, this is this is a plague outbreak that happens in Athens, really at the height of its democratic glory, right? De- Athens pioneers a kind of direct democracy by free male citizens that is that is justly extraordinary and famous. And ultimately, this leads the Athenians into this existential war against the Spartans. And in the first year of the, the outbreak of this war with much of the Athenian population basically inside the walls, almost under siege, this terrible disease breaks out. We still don't know what it was. And this is a, a cause of enormous consternation for, for ancient historians. We actually don't know what the disease was, but he describes the, the symptoms. But what he does is he describes sort of the symptoms at the social level and the frustration with people who expected doctors to have an answer. And they didn't, and they were helpless. And and it's a it's an amazingly timeless. I mean, he wrote this work of history and says it's going to be timeless. He says you'll read this forever, and we still are. And so he certainly had confidence. Oh, but what were the physical symptoms? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a disease that that has a kind of extreme fever, and then I think there's there's skin lesions or, or kind of pox that. That appear and then extremely high mortality, delirium, headache, extreme pain, and then very high mortality. So it doesn't sound like bubonic plague. People thought typhus, typhoid, smallpox. I think typhoid is probably somewhere in the mix, but we really we can't quite pin it down. Uh, and this is true of a lot of diseases in the the written records. Is they're often probably multiple diseases at once. The ancients don't have modern medical categories. So we really, most of the time, can't figure out what a disease is. Bubonic plague is different because you grow these huge swellings, these big tumors that stick out from your neck and your armpit and your knees and your groin. So that's kind of a dead ringer. We know that one when we see it. Others we can kind of sometimes guess. Typhoid is is a kind of spotted fever and you know syphilis and there's a handful that have pretty pretty clear symptoms but a lot of diseases sort of cause fever and respiratory symptoms and skin rashes and you know is it a measles smallpox typhus typhoid the bubonic plague is the is the kind of 
epic one, right? I mean, it's the one we always think of. Um, one of the things I discovered in doing some research here was that climate change had a quite large amount to do <coughs> ah, here we go with without the outbreak i'm talking i think i'm am i talking about the sixth century is that the bubonic plague that's that's can you let our listeners understand that connection between what happened i think is it 572 is that the date that i've 541 okay. 42 yeah yeah it's it's a big part of the story, and it's, it's of course, sort of unsettling for, for us today, but the climate affects everything. I mean, it, it affects biology, society, economy, and the climate is always sort of this joker in the background. And the climate's always changing and varying for natural reasons, and of course, now it is for, for human-driven reasons as well. But, but we know from the struggle record that the climate changes, and that this sort of you know, it stirs the pot. It it provokes pathogens to do different things. It makes rodents and mosquitoes, uh, the things that carry diseases, multiply or migrate. And it makes human societies do things. So it changes human behavior. It undermines human well-being, human economies. And in the specific case you're talking about, the outbreak of bubonic plague in the sixth century, which is one of these, yeah, epic is a very good word for it. I mean, it's it's <laughs> this horrible outbreak. It is, we know that just a, a few years before the outbreak of this disease, that the climate goes into this really wild tailspin. We now sort of understand, at least partly, that it was caused by a series of volcanoes, which can very rapidly cool the climate. We don't actually know wh exactly what happened because plague is a weird disease. It's spread by rodents and fleas. So it could have something to do with them. It usually has something to do with them. But it probably is partly explained by the fact that the, the harvests failed. And so you have human societies that are already very poor and living directly off of that year's agricultural product. And when you have a series of harvest failures, you probably have a big human population that is very susceptible to disease. So underlying health status, even of course today, we know this from COVID, has a strong effect on outcomes in cases of infection. So if you imagine a world where people are already infected with lots of low-level parasites and pathogens, then the harvests fail, they fail again, they fail again. People are already on the brink of sort of biological susceptibility. And then the worst pathogen that we know of shows up. It sort of creates the, the environment for this sort of disaster. So the climate undermining the food production causes people to migrate. It causes people's bodies to be weaker when the infection does show up. These are just some of the, the possible ways that the climate system affects human health. We know that as we sort of experience the climate change today, that there are lots of different ways that the climate can can affect the spread of infectious diseases. Um, am I wrong in remembering that the climate also affected rodents and the, 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 the interaction of rodents with other rodents and fleas with other fleas? And then so you can so populations of rodents can move south to get out of the cold come into contact with rodents they hadn't previously contacted. Fleas can jump from one rodent to another, and then one of them, the black rat, gets on a ship and then 
bingo, we're, we're off to the races. That's, that's, that's something like that has got to be the okay. story. It's one of the reasons why plague, plague is a wild disease. I mean, it's, it's literally a wild disease. Most of the terrible big diseases in human history, malaria, tuberculosis, smallpox, they all start as animal diseases. I mean, every disease comes from somewhere. Diseases are always moving between animal hosts, but they mostly evolve the ability to spread directly between humans. Plague is really weird in that it never does that. So it can spread between humans for a little bit, but not for long. It is truly a wild animal disease and it, it never becomes a human disease. It's still out there. And one of the reasons we can never get rid of plague is because it's not a human disease. It lives in wild rodents in Central Asia, in, in Madagascar, in the United States West, in the Rocky Mountains. Don't ever, don't pet the prairie dogs. Certainly don't eat the prairie dogs. They've got plague and they can give it to you. So it's it lives permanently in wild rodents. And somehow at different times in history, it has spilled out of those wild rodent populations. And it does so when it when it gets into the kinds of rodents that live in human habitats. And we can hardly imagine, we still have lots of rodents. There's more rodents than you want to know living in and around everywhere that we live. But in the past, it was even more unbelievable. They didn't have you know, pesticides. They didn't have the kinds of sealants that we have. They were surrounded particularly by black rats. And the black rat is very susceptible to this disease. And so the human pandemics happen when a wild rodent disease gets into our commensal rodents, the rodents that live in and around our houses, and then they all die and their fleas are, you know, they're as hungry as you or me and they want supper and when they don't have any more rat blood to eat, they, you know, they lower their standards and they're willing to drink human blood and they hop to us and infect us with bubonic plague. There's that in Camus' uh, La Peste, which is one of the greatest pieces of literature about plague, it starts with a rat dying and another rat dying. And it's just funny, you don't really associate just rat dying with the imminence of human death. And that's fascinating that it's literally because these fleas are hungry because they've killed off their hosts and they just randomly looking around. What else can I get? And there's a human yeah. lying down with rats living in his house or her house. And let alone the latrines, the, 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 the lack of sanitation. And it's, there's something kind of amazing to me about the fact that they didn't understand this. And so, yeah. so readers should know I've just been diagnosed with pneumonia, another classic. And that, of course, when that breaks out in the sixth century, as Rome is struggling to retain its power and grip in Europe, would really knock its military for six, would really put pressure on its economy. And in your telling was a kind of critical turning point in the ability of the Roman Empire to survive. It was just kind of the last thing that tipped it over because they just couldn't sustain the kind of levels of military engagement in particularly in Germany and 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 Europe that northern Europe that they had previously been able to is that is that a fair a summary of what you think might have happened i think it is and if i can if you'll if you'll indulge me i want to go back one second to the to the Please. rats and the biology of plague because 
you said something earlier that I, I loved about how the way I put it in the book is it's a microbes world. I mean, we're just part of this crazy world of living things on earth that have been created by evolution. And it's, it's all so weird. And the plague is this really weird disease and it, it just never stops ceasing to amaze me. But it gets even weirder than we've said because the, the plague bacterium has evolved to be incredibly good at sort of taking over the, the fleas. And it, the plague bacteria, actually, they work as a team to, to block up the, the gut of the flea. And so the flea is really dying. It's starving. It's incredibly hungry. And so it just starts ravenously feeding. So the bacteria kind of turn the flea into a, a zombie germ Jesus spreading Lord. blood suck. And, and it, it really, we can actually now sort of see the, the evolutionary mechanisms of this. The, the plague is such a weird product of nature, which is always out there trying these weird experiments. 99.99999% to infinity of these experiments fail, but there's so many microbes that are constantly experimenting. And we've learned this with COVID that, you know, these variants, COVID is every time it infects one of us, it's mutating over and over and over. And most of the mutations do nothing or make the virus a little bit worse. But unfortunately, one out of every trillion trillion of those tiny little genetic changes will change the shape of a, a, of a molecule on the virus that will make it better at latching onto our cells or fighting off our immune system. So evolution is really weird. Plague is one of its really weird creations. And so as a historian, back to your, your actual question, what's wild is how these random natural mutations and the natural history of our pathogens intersects human history in these really sometimes completely random and unpredictable, but sometimes very, very powerful ways. And that's what I think is one of the cool things that we're learning that we didn't know about the human past is the way some of these pieces fit together. In the case of the Roman Empire, as you said, in the sixth century, the Roman Empire is already smaller and weaker than it had been at its height, but it's still, you know, I don't think it's doomed to to, to vanish. The Emperor Justinian is a very capable, energetic, conquering emperor who's doing quite well into the, the 530s. He's retaken Africa. He's in the process of successfully retaking Italy, sort of putting back together the Mediterranean Empire. And, you know, we can, historians will argue about this until the sun goes dim. But would he have succeeded? We don't know. Because he certainly, whether or not he's overreaching, has terrible, terrible luck. Uh, it's not his fault that the volcanoes go off, the sun goes dim, the crops fail, the crops fail, the crops fail. People are starving, people are desperately migrating, rodents are moving, and then boom, in 541, 542, the bubonic plague shows up and kills, we don't know, but a huge part of the population. Certainly the evidence points to, to a catastrophe and the new evidence that we're getting from archaeology keeps pointing to, to the catastrophic impact of this disease outbreak. And when you're running a big empire, you need taxes and you need soldiers. And when all of a sudden you're still protecting the same frontier and you've got a lot of very serious enemies across the frontier in Persia, across the Danube, in Germany, and all of a sudden you lose a huge part of your military and a huge part of your tax base, but you've got to defend the same perimeter. You know, you start playing whack-a-mole and the Roman Empire doesn't just 
just shudder after the the outbreak of this plague, but it's it's further weakened and it kind of goes into a, a a spiral. And the plague, one of the things about the plague is it's not one and done. Because it's a rodent disease, it strikes and then it retreats into the rodents and it kind of waits and simmers and then it keeps coming back. And this is a big part of the story that over decades it keeps coming back. And the Romans are, are really able to, to fight on and hang on for quite a while, but sort of the repeated nature of these outbreaks that keep undermining the tax base and the army ultimately make it impossible to keep together a kind of big unified empire. I'm going to temporarily jump ahead because the impact of plagues on politics is fascinating to me because I think, and I don't think we've really kind of integrated this yet into our understanding of the last five years. I wonder if the only thing that prevented Trump from being reelected was COVID, that the the economy was booming because he had put a rocket under it with massive borrowing and tax cuts. The restrict, slight restrictions on immigration have led to higher wages for for minorities and for the, the poor. You could see I was terrified that he would win re-election. I assumed he would. I remember saying to a friend of mine, well, the only thing that can save us now is some random event that we can't foresee that might change the <laughs> dynamic of everything. I would also say the following, but like Boris also, you know, he comes in, he has that brilliant election where he wins an 80-seat majority, he's, he's doing Brexit, and then suddenly, boom, this happens. And it's the, it's the one thing that Boris is really not equipped to handle. He's a free kind of guy. He likes, he doesn't like controlling things. He's a, and of course he can't even, you know, stop himself from, from spreading it around. And, and it, it kind of completely throws him off his game along with other things. Anyway, I'm just, I, it's just, we, and do we ever talk about the end of Trump solely in terms of COVID? Yeah, we're obsessed now with his policies on it or whatever, and whether he was, whether he wanted us to inject bleach or whatever. In the grand scheme of things, this thing might have saved us from a Trump second term in some It's certainly more competent than the Democrats. Let's put, let's put it that way. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you go back, go back and watch the, the 2020, January 2020 State of the Union address, Trump sounds like a relatively normal human being in that address for the most part. It's probably his most normal mainstream speech he gave. His approval ratings were high. This is the one where... Nancy Pelosi is sitting awkwardly and, and people in the, in the house are refusing to clap. If you look at that in January, 2020, you think he's, he's going to get reelected. And this, then this wild card is, is dealt that changes everything. And it's particularly his handling of it. I mean, even if he had just sort of handled it like a normal mainstream leader and admitted that this was a serious challenge, that there were going to be trade-offs and hard decisions and had mourned people who died. So it, it did, it, it scrambled everything. It also, I think it's so easy. It also made the career of one Ron DeSantis, who may well yeah. be our next president. It's just, it's just I find right. it's all random, of course. Anyway, we're digressing. I want to get back to the big one, the Black Death. So we have the revival of plague during the first millennium. We no longer call that period the Dark Ages because it's a dumb thing to call it, but it's definitely a, where civilization is definitely hunkering down and smaller, less connected 
places. And then the Black Death comes along, which is just staggering in terms of what it does to Europe. Tell us about that and how did people respond to it and what, what effects did it have on European society and religion and politics? Well, the, the first plague pandemic, the one that happens in the late Roman Empire, repeatedly breaks out between the 6th and the 8th century. And the population goes way down. The cities are much, much smaller. The economy is much simpler. There's less trade, less connection. There's just fewer people. And then the plague goes away. We don't totally know why. And it goes away for centuries, and the population starts growing again. And so we think of this as kind of the medieval efflorescence, the, the flourishing of the Middle Ages, the 11th, 12th, 13th century population is growing, trade is growing, it's much more connected and cosmopolitan, universities, all the, the, the great universities, you know, just trace their roots back to, to this late medieval out, you know, flourishing. And so the world is, is going quite well, the population is growing, and maybe the population even grows a little too much, because by the the 13th, late 13th and early 14th century, there's some signs that the the world of Europe certainly is kind of at its carrying capacity, that there's so many people that in a Malthusian way, there's a lot of pressure. And then all of a sudden in the 1340s, it happens again. And we call this the second plague pandemic because the first one is the late Roman one. In the 1340s, the second plague pandemic starts. It's bubonic plague. It's caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. It's a rodent disease that gets into commensal rodent populations. It's probably moved out of Central Asia by Mongol empires. So you, in this case, have a very powerful empire that's built on the steppe by nomadic peoples who are moving between China and the Black Sea. The Dothraki. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is, the, this is the world of Marco Polo. I mean, this is an amazing, globally interconnected old world. And out of nowhere, the plague starts. 1346, 1347, it's in, Europe, it's in the Mediterranean. It moves throughout the, the Islamic world, the Near East and North Africa, Probably the, the most vivid descriptions are actually the Arabic ones mm. that describe it in, in the Near East and North Africa. It reaches Italy first and then spreads throughout Europe. And in this case, the, the Roman plague, we have some sources for. The Black Death is different because we have lots of sources. It's just more recent and there's more written material. And in this case, we can really follow what happens. And there's there's really very little like it in the chronicles of human history. It's it's still, I mean, I've worked on this disease. I've studied plague for years and years, and it's still, I mean, it just, it boggles my mind. It's, it's really hard to wrap your mind around. How did this happen? What would it have been like to, to be a human being? The, the bubonic plague in the Black Death is able to kill around half the population in certain regions. And so whole cities, whole territories could see up to half of the, the population just carried away in the space of, of a year or two. How do they even and, bury them? Yeah, they, that's a great question because societies then as now tend to be very 
conservative. We need tradition. We need ritual to to help us grieve and to help us mourn. It's why the the rituals of death are some of the most sort of conservative. They change slowly because it just helps us deal with the the hardest things that we deal with. And one of the I think one of the really lasting traumas of of COVID will will be the experience of people not being able to be with their loved ones because of the inability to be in hospitals and will be the the difficulty that we've had grieving and not being able to practice the normal morning ritual i never i never so, got, i never got to see my father buried we never had a memorial service that's why last week what we did we felt the need to do something you know but, but after two years it just felt like it's so we what we did is we put up an exhibition of his paintings, which he'd done in the last 10 years of his life and invited all his friends and the whole family. Mm. And we, we, we just talked about him. We needed to do it. It's very, fra- obviously, it's yeah. a little raw for me because it happened last week. But uh, you're right. But, but in the plague, they couldn't, they, it was, <laughs> there just wasn't enough people to bury other people, right? I mean, it was, it was, it was, it's, it's almost unimaginable. The corpses piled up in the streets. Yeah. And so we have, we have vivid descriptions uh, of that because it's one of the things that, uh, of the whole experience of, of this kind of traumatic, catastrophic mortality, that's one of the things that really stuck with people, that, that they couldn't process their their grief in the kind of normal ways and they did they had to they had to resort to to whatever they could do and remember as well in this society they thought that dead bodies were one of the most dangerous sources of disease they thought that the corpses corrupted the atmosphere and caused miasma that caused the disease so for them putting the corpses in the ground wasn't just part of grieving, which it was that as well. It was also sort of medically urgent because they thought that the the corrupting influence of the the bodies would lead other people to get sick and die. And so we know that that they had to take extreme measures and bury people in giant mass graves and pits. We have very vivid descriptions of this. And then of course we know of a huge number of these. Some of the most famous are of course at London. And we've, we've increasingly explored these archaeologically. We've recovered the DNA. Modern scientists have recovered the DNA. So it, it, it is clearly one of the, the most lasting, painful parts of the experience of this plague is just that it, it so disrupts this society that you can't even conduct the kind of normal rituals that, that the society depends on. And do they think they can catch it from each other so that they, the society itself begins to fall apart? So for the most part, these societies don't have our modern ideas of contagion because they don't have a sense of of little microorganisms that cause infection. But they do that. People aren't stupid. (laughs) You know, they even without the medical science to explain it, they do start to catch on that diseases are contagious. So contagion ideas of contagion are always at least there in the background and they grow and grow and people do even without before the science is there people realize that you can 
catch diseases from people who are sick. And so you get this uh, tradition so, of the rich or the wealthy sort of retiring to the countryside or to exactly. their, their stately right. mansions and trying to sort of keep this at bay. I, I mean, in the, I'm thinking now the 1660s where, I, I mean, like, it's kind of amazing to me what they did, but they they disappeared. I mean, the, the, so you, I just can't imagine what London was like. You know, you, it's it's losing half its population. The wealthy are disappearing. The king is gone. It must have been just mind-boggling how they – now, what did they attribute this to? Did they themselves think they had committed some terrible sin? Or how did they explain this to themselves? Yeah. And so you're talking about the what is really amazingly the last big plague outbreak in London, 1665, that's amazing, wonderfully described by Daniel Defoe in the book called Journal of a Plague Year, which is fictionalized, but it's still, if you want a, a source, that's one of the good ones. The Italian novel Manzoni's Betrothed, describing the, the plague. I read both um, of those. Um, yeah, they are. Two of the best. Yeah. I mean, as... Literature, you know, when I in the 80s and 90s, where else was I going to go to think about this? Yeah. Where do you you look and you search for human reference? And what was strange about that, of course, is that in the past, these plagues happened everywhere, whereas in that particular case, it was extremely concentrated in a very small number of people. I mean, when I say that, I mean just proportionally. And so for the vast majority of people, it wasn't happening at all, or it was happening on TV or somewhere they didn't, until the toll became so enormous that they couldn't really avoid it. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves again, but no question to me, absolutely no question at all, that the only reason we had this revolution in gay rights was the plague. It was the fundamental cause of it, because it totally revealed the existence of homosexuals in every part of the country. Yeah. It touched every family. They suddenly, and suddenly these, these wicked, evil degenerates were suddenly suffering young human beings who were dying of this terrifying and brutal disease. Many, many, many different diseases, actually, because it was just the immune system collapsed. And so you have a shift in public consciousness that hasn't ended and that led to, you know, every, I think, I mean, I'd like to claim some credit for myself, but I think, I think in some ways that was so crucial. What was in the Black Plague, what was the shift in Black Death, sorry, what was the shift in consciousness that that caused in the society at large? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't begin to, to sort of say that there was one, <laughs> one shift or one change of consciousness. I mean, that something that massive mm -hmm. that kills such a the population sort of is just sort of like taking the big box of human civilization and just shaking it as hard as you can and throwing it at the floor. Uh, and the pieces go every which way. So some societies come out of it in a tailspin and never really recover. So much of the, the Eastern Mediterranean, the, the world of the Islamic Near East and North Africa was at the time of the Black Death was in some ways the most developed economically and populous in terms of density. Italy was far more advanced than Northern Europe. And in some ways, these societies come out of it much worse and, and certainly in some cases never fully recover or regain leadership. In Northern Europe, you see a whole gamut of re reactions. Of course, the famous one that the people often know of and still is certainly has some truth is that 
all of a sudden you've got a bunch of serfs who are able to to resist the power of their their landlords and fight against feudalism and just because and, they, they 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 labor is because just supply yeah, and demand true. suddenly their labor is worth so much more than it used to be so they had this exactly. suddenly had leverage i'm going to go walk over to the next field if sure. you don't you yeah. know give me a little better deal so you can do you trace see totally feudalism the beginning of some kind of democracy i don't see that word but but some a certainly less feudalistic and surf master relationship and so you began to see that that's a pretty important moment it seems to me in terms of the development especially uh, insofar as i've understood it and studied it in england in particular yeah no that's 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 one of the the influences and consequences culturally you see every possible reaction you see extreme reactions so flagellants and anti-semitism you see secularism you see kind of nihilism to say look everybody's dying carpe diem so tell people tell tell the them. listeners about the flagellants they're, they're one of my favorite groups are, a weird are, religious sect these are think of these as kind of you know ascetic monks but but on steroids who take the mortification of the flesh as a way of of propitiating their sins and the sins of society to to violent extremes and in order to to kind of pay for for sins not just sort of deprive their their flesh the way that monks do of say indulgence through food or sex but but actually hurt themselves and so the plague doesn't create this but it certainly amplifies it and feeds it it gives it oxygen there's these huge dyings and sickness there must be some sin behind it and so we have to go out and and try and pay for these sins by by mortifying our own flesh and committing violence against ourselves lashing ourselves in order to to stop the plague and they would have big public gatherings and and whip themselves into bloody messes yeah, I mean it's 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 very much a, a spectacle and part of a, a kind of public culture. So it's it's just one of the many things that that plague has has inspired in human cultures for sure. It's so Game of Thrones. It's 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 it's, it's fascinating. So again, when we move forward to the 17th century, and we have this sudden resurgence, particularly in England, 1665, which weirdly is that in London instantly succeeded by the Great Fire, which also happens to help end the plague, it seems. You know, am, am I right about that or wrong about that? Yeah, no, no. There's there's sometimes a connection drawn. We don't really know, but the fire must have killed a lot of rodents. It was it would have looked like a very, very bad year for for London. But the the bigger story is actually that the plague is largely contained to London and a few other very small areas, and then it doesn't come back. So actually, the the significance of that outbreak isn't just that we have Defoe's amazing description of it or that the fire helps to play a role and mark this really major year in the history of, of London as a, as a city, but is the, the main storyline is that the plague stopped and population growth takes off. When you get rid of the plague, even though you still have smallpox and typhus, which are pretty horrible diseases, and they are really coming into their own in the 17th century as well, and they'll still be the main diseases in the 18th century in Britain. But, but the main story is human societies actually seem to have figured out the plague. We don't know for sure how 
the plague is brought under control. But the fact that it is increasingly kept out of Western Europe totally from the 1660s, there's a major outbreak in the south of France in the 18th century, but it's even quickly brought under control. So one of the big questions is, how did they do that? Did they did they get lucky? Did they figure it out? Probably it was a little bit of both, but a big part of the story does seem to be that quarantine and containment measures actually stop the the spread of plague. And so when I was when I was in, probably is- when I was in high school, I was acted in a play called The Roses of Eam, and Eam is a is is a fascinating story. Tell us about it. Well, this is. This is a village that, that sort of chooses self-isolation in order to spare the, the transmission of plague. It's a, it's a good example of this broader phenomenon of even before germ theory, people realizing that, that diseases are contagious, that they spread. Even if you don't know the mechanism, if you, if you have the right interventions, you can stop it. And so it stops it from spreading out of the village. Same reason why it's probably contained to London. Same reason why it's not reintroduced to Britain is because of quarantine and the practice of making ships isolate before they enter port. It's hugely uncontroversial. I mean, it's hugely controversial. You have people all the time. The merchants hate it. They don't want to wait. They say our trade goods are rotting. And, and so it's political a lot of the same ways that the lockdowns and quarantines and masks are still controversial because they affect different groups differently. But these are very old conversations that, that go back centuries. In Eam, they, they basically, one of the ministers there said, it's our duty to stop this spreading and, and, and stopped anybody leaving the village. Yeah. 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 It's a, and, it's, and they um, all died. <laughs> I mean, it was a, a massive amount of them died in this act of quite extraordinary self-sacrifice right and and it was almost a religious duty for them i i i I don't know a similar story to that in which people genuinely gave up their own lives to make sure the neighboring villages didn't get it and in fact sometimes neighboring villages would come and leave food and some stuff outside the town which the other people would come and pick and then go back in really like a siege in a way yeah. That, so this is, you acted out a, I don't know the play. Oh, it's this amazing. Play it's called you... The Roses of Eam. It has this vast cast, which is why it was a good school play. And uh-huh. I, I, played the, I played the lead, the vicar, who has these incredibly difficult decisions to make because he sees his own family die of this as he is blamed. And as he tries to keep morale up, it's an extraordinary play, except rather grim for, for high school, but uh, it had a lot of power. But that story is written. That's where I, I mean, this is where a lot of the things like Ring a Ring of Roses, a uh, mm-hmm. pocket full of poses, a tissue, a tissue, mm-hmm. we all fall down. I mean, that is a childhood rhyme that I learned in the 1960s in England. Uh, it comes from the 1660s, describing an, 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 just an extraordinary a pocket full of posies that the, the, the Ian got it because they had some sort of, someone sent them a package, a ba- they think a bag of linen that had some of the fleas in it. That's what happened. Mm. So, but the moral, the moral strength to do that, and it's not common because one of the things you, you see is that 
people aren't really nice in plagues. I mean, you, you'd like to think the rule would be we all hang together, or, but of course that doesn't happen, right? There's a lot of thefts, a lot of a lot of opportunism. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what you're what you're getting at is so important and so relevant for us as we hopefully we can come out of the the fog of COVID and and decompress and have rational conversations about how to how to do things differently and better the next time because of course the the conversation and our public health response to COVID got very unhelpfully polarized i mean almost into into two quasi religious camps you know for where mask wearing is is almost seen as a kind of saintly token of virtue or a kind of demonic sign of, of vice. And that is that is extremely unhelpful, even if it is pretty easy to understand how that happens. But but I think that what you're getting at is that that there are ways in which having really strong threads of community can be very helpful, can be a buffer in confronting these kinds of public health challenges and they're they're not purely technocratic policy questions they they really do ultimately involve questions about what what people will and can and should sacrifice for each other because one thing we can observe from the history of plagues is that they they affect people differently and we now know this with covid-19 very personally but if you have pre-existing health conditions your risk profile is very different from somebody who's, you know, a fraternity guy who's, who's not going to die. If you're a small business owner who's, you know, a, a, a mandatory lockdown means the end of your family business. You don't have three months of, of salary you can pay to your employees if you don't have an income stream versus if you're a huge business that can weather six months of lockdown and would love to see your competition driven out of business. So plagues affect people differently. And if you're a middle-class worker that can sit on Zoom, you think of it very differently than, than a service industry worker who has to go to work to get, to get paid, to get wages and tips. So uh, societies that have sort of strong communitarian basis where they are invested in each other, they sacrifice for each other, they, you know, you know your neighbor and you know that his business might fail, or you know that his mom is vulnerable, respond to, to this very differently than we do at 30,000 feet on social media, where it's very technocratic. So it's interesting that, you know, the the nursery rhyme you're talking about and the the play even as a kind of part of a community's collective memory and experience of of these really traumatic events in the past. It, it feels so different from our world and the experience of COVID where we just kind of yell at each other. And I don't think necessarily came away from it uh, all the wiser. Can you compare America's response to the plague of 2019 with that of 1918? Because there we have a Really, it's a century apart. It's a different, obviously, it's the flu in 1918. How did we, how would you, how do you compare those two responses? And what does it say to us about America over those, that, that century? Yeah, I mean, the, there are both striking similarities and striking differences. The, the 1918, 1919 influenza is different in certain ways. It's a different disease that's, that's extremely severe. And, Probably to me, the biggest single difference actually is that the the Spanish influenza 
kills young people and young adults. The entire moral experience of COVID-19 would have been completely different if it killed young people and young adults. And we'll need to, some space to really grapple with, with that and what it means and, and what we think we might do differently. But that's just the reality that it tended to, to prey upon people who had pre-existing health complications and the very old. And it was a very discriminatory disease in that sense. Would have been totally different. I mean, think of the the different response to polio. The response to the polio vaccine was to have parties and parades and to make national, global heroes of people who relieved us of the the terror of that disease. And the the experience was colored by the fact that it was a cruel disease that affected children first and foremost. And so, the the nineteen eighteen nineteen pandemic was completely different in that it killed a different age cohort. Why? Of, Though of that's, that's the interesting thing. Why? It seems to be basically biological. So scary, we don't know. And so if you talk to the, the, the experts in this, the honest answer is we don't totally understand. It seems to have something to do with the fact that the disease triggered a really strong immune response and particularly seemed to encourage secondary infection. So most people actually don't die of the viral infection. They die of secondary bacterial pneumonia. This is a time without antibiotics. So They died of what I currently uh, have. <laughs> I didn't want to scare you. All right. I didn't want to scare you. Steroids and antibiotics should be yeah, fine. But the, uh, the, it seems to be that as much as anything, the, the immune response and secondary infections are what are killing people. And so they're killing young people disproportionately. So it's biologically very different. That makes it a very different moral and political experience. But there are certain similarities. I mean, even to mask wearing, to to kind of what we would call lockdown, some of these same debates, same trade-offs, same controversies played out. To me, as a historian, the amazing thing, reflecting back on 1918-19, is the the worst severe sudden epidemic of the of the century. Polio and AIDS are worse in different ways. But it's a, of an acute infectious disease epidemic. It's the worst of the century. And it's very quickly sort of forgotten. I don't actually think that the same thing will happen with COVID. But what's crazy is society kind of partly because it was wrapped up with the end of World War I, which was this horrible political military trauma, people wanted to move on. And so we, we talk more about the Spanish flu today than people did 30, 40 years ago, when there were still a lot of people around who lived through it. So it's sort of repressed very quickly and very completely, almost forgotten until now we're, we're kind of interested in it. The yeah. most amazing thing to me about that was the president never said a word about it. <laughs> yeah. The, the country is being devastated. A lot of these people, these men, young men who had fought in the war were coming home or they were in the barracks where it spread like wildfire before they were going to be shipped over there. It was a military. It was also the war made this happen. And you, you go back to the parliament in England, and you also have this extraordinary denial that it's happening. Or if it is happening, it's not something that politics should really address in some kind of way. That is what, when I went and read books on that experience, that was what struck me too. There was not only did we forget about it, we barely mentioned it at the time. It's it's hard to fathom, and I don't know the the full explanation. It's something to do with coming out of World War One. It's also something to do with the 
the differences in the shape of the media. And COVID-19 is the first national, international, global pandemic of an acute infection that we've experienced in the age of, of modern telecommunications and social media. And so that I don't think has, has always been helpful, but, you know, particularly when we were all sitting at home on our computers, the, the kind of intense social media conversation with all the, the good and bad of that will be one of the really important things about the experience of COVID-19. And in 1918-19, there's nothing equivalent to the, to the national media that we have today, and there's nothing equivalent to, to social media. So it's still a, a world that's, that's much more local. And you do see a lot of talk about it at, at state and particularly municipal level in local newspapers. But you're right that it, it doesn't have the same kind of national prominence that, that we would expect. Yeah. I, I'm I'm still amazed by that, and they, you know, children still went to school, right? I mean, some 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 places had school outside for some reasons. There were also interesting comparisons between cities. I think Philadelphia had some sort of victory parade for World War. Decided to hold it, even though, so the streets were crammed with people, and you know, a couple of weeks later, I think. The corpses started mounting. They couldn't, they actually, even in the, in the 20th century, they didn't have the capacity to bury them quickly enough. The morgues were yeah. overflowing. They were stacked up in the corridors. And these were young people with a huge impact on their families, their children. Right. I, I wonder what would have happened if, if COVID had devastated the young in, in a way. I don't know what we would have done. It would have been... We kind of we kind of sacrificed the old in a way. Yeah. In a in a it was I, in a brutal way. way too. I think, yeah. I think the response would have been unimaginably different if if it affected children and young adults with the same severity. It polio's the example I, I use again, but we wouldn't be having debates about vaccine mandates if it was a disease like polio that, that killed children. It would be get vaccinated or or stop breathing the same air we what, breathe. What would happen before the vaccination? Would we have had a total economic lockdown? Would would everyone have stayed? Huh. I mean, I, it just it beggars belief. Now, we've also probably not seen the end of the impact of COVID. I'm thinking specifically right now of China, where hmm. this plague has the potential to bring down an entire system of government because it reveals incredible inhumanity, extraordinary rigidity among its elite, isolationism in a sense that they don't have the best vaccines because they won't take Western vaccines. The fact that they locked those poor people in that building mm. in a fire, they burned them alive and wouldn't let them out. If that doesn't discredit at some deep, deep level the system that you're in, what would? No, I think you're. I think you're asking the right question. This this has the potential to be hugely impactful in in China. I think it's very hard for us in Western media to to sometimes really have a feel for for what's going on, where public opinion is, what kind of information people are getting. But you're seeing the the kind of, certainly the potential of a society with strong communitarian values that can be very positive and helpful in times of crisis. But 
when you combine that with a, an authoritarian regime that has no liberal checks and balances, no due process, no sense of, of, of personal liberty that can restrain a national level government, you're seeing an experiment play out with how far that can go before the pressure builds up too much. And one thing history teaches us, it's very hard to predict the future in human affairs, but things can change very, very quickly. And these kinds of natural catastrophes can be can be a huge catalyst for change. So it's it's impossible to to say what's going to happen. I think it's I find it very hard to know really where the the public is, but same in Russia, it's so hard to get really good coverage, I think. But but yeah, it's a it's a tinderbox and it's just a, a horrible situation for the people who are suffering through it and there's a lot of courageous people. I mean, it's in the West, hard to sometimes appreciate the the courage that it takes to speak out. But we, I'm just in awe of those people. The other strange thing about plagues, which always struck me, which Camus was one of the first to note, which when I first read that novel, I was like, so that I don't really buy that. Which is that hmm. that once the numbers started to decline, once you could see the collapse, the thing burning itself out. A segment of society never believed it, didn't want to believe it, became attached to the idea of a permanent crisis. It couldn't, didn't have the self-confidence to leave the crisis. I'm thinking, of, <laughs> I'm, I mean, and I'm thinking of people who even now, I'm not talking about people who might have pre-existing conditions or, or, or particularly vulnerable. The people who otherwise are not particularly vulnerable to this, who've been vaccinated and all the rest of it, who are still at home, who are still absolutely terrified of this thing. That tenacity of plague to seize the human imagination and, and create an atmosphere which you kind of never, you never leave in your head anyway. I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, this summer I was looking at the beach in Provincetown. This young lady was walking by herself on the beach with wind everywhere with a mask on. And I'm just like, you know, relax. It's really not that bad for me. I mean, I, I had this. I had a. I had a view that the point was to keep living. Mm -hmm. That you should be prudent. I had no. I. I. I was. I was. My various look at my lungs. I. I knew I was terrified of this thing before I got vaccinated. But and I stayed inside and wore a mask everywhere and got a little jumpy about it actually. But I just wanted to get back to normality. And that's that's mm -hmm. actually. I think it's partly because of AIDS because I'd lived through stuff that. You just learn that you that in some ways you cannot be terrified. You, your own confidence and respect of this illness, the determination to live, is also a factor in whether disease really takes over. Do you think that's is was that a function in other places? Do people just not believe it was over for a long time, like after the Black Death or after the sixteen sixties, where people are like always terrified that at some point this bloody thing is going to come back and kill us all? Yeah, I mean, we have to we have to think that there were. Although I I can't think of great examples. I mean, I think this to me this feels like something a little bit different. It has to has to have something to do with the the way that this got polarized, and you know, the anti COVID became as much a religion as a kind of rational public health response. It got so hard to have rational conversations about trade offs. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with with the fact that this is just this is just a calculus the you take risks every day the flu is a dangerous disease and 
as a society, we just agree to bear a certain amount of, of risk because we there are trade-offs. We want to live a normal life. We need economic interaction. We need human cultural interaction. And so we take risks. When we didn't understand COVID, when there's uncertainty, that changes the calculus. When we don't have a vaccine, that changes the calculus. And so the fact that I, I think it undermines the credibility of public health responses, which I'm, and certainly in the, the first phases of COVID w- would have been in favor of fairly robust public health measures. But then you have to dial it down or there's no credibility because the point of restrictions and, and interventions isn't the restriction interventions to, to be able to stabilize a normal society where you bear a, a certain tolerable amount of risk and you can never get risk back to zero. But as it goes down, as the, the death rates are going down, you have to, you have to adapt. And so, you know, you can't judge anybody's response, but as an individual, if they want to wear a mask at the beach, they're going to get a weird tan line. That's their, their choice. But, but the bigger risk is that it, it actually, for that swayable middle who will listen to, to reason, it can be undermining when the argument doesn't seem to be about how do we mitigate the risk of the unknown? How do we get back to normal? How do we balance in a society where there's always trade-offs? You have to, you have to dial it down. And you know, people, the hospitals aren't full of people dying right now. So that changes the, the conversation really fundamentally. And I think that's critically important for rational public health conversation because we will have another pandemic. We're going to go through this again. And if if people don't think that, that these kind of policy choices are being made on on reasonable grounds, they they will resist them. And you'll get you'll get equally irrational resistance to things like vaccines and reasonable mitigation measures. When I think of the future, and when you look at the past as you have, certain things seem to increase the likelihood of these outbreaks. Climate change, obviously, can shake things up, stir the pot, as you put it. We are going through an epic period of climate change. Mass communication, I mean, not communication, but travel, the porousness of borders, migration. These are huge factors in the spread of epidemics. We are also in the middle of a huge mass migration around the world. On top of that, we also now have scientists who are playing with these things that, that I find terrifying. I, 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 have, I don't have a firm opinion because I don't think we know enough, but I am certainly open to the possibility that this hideous epidemic was caused by a human experiment gone awry. In the words of, of John Stewart, you know, well, who knows? We, Wuhan flu. Well, guess what? Wuhan was where they were experimenting on bat viruses. That's what this is. Well, let's think about that for a bit. I mean, at some point, and my view is, 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 is and, and I've become, I guess, inured to this. I, I, I've lost faith to some extent in the public health authorities. I have to say, I, they lied to us on a couple of occasions, I think, because they thought it was good for us uh, or they thought it was necessary. And very early, for example, telling us that masking was irrelevant and, and what they were really doing is trying to keep the masks for the hospital workers was completely legitimate. But if they just told us that, fine. And whether they were right or wrong is less important. Were they completely honest with us about it? And I don't think Fauci was, to be honest. And I was 
deeply disappointed in him. Although I, I think he was trying to do his best. I don't want to demonize this guy. And I think also at the beginning of epidemics, you have to be a little forgiving of public authority. They don't know what is happening. And an abundance of caution seems to me to be the first sane possibility. Do you, how do you feel the future? I, I personally, you're right, I'm, I'm a total catastrophist in general, but I, don't, I, I think we're going to be wiped out at least we're going to have take major population hits on this earth the next hundred years. I, I, I can't see any other way out. Well, I'm a, I'm a historian, not a, not a futurist, <laughs> but, but if, if the past is any guide, that's certainly in the, in the realm of the plausible, unfortunately, and like all humans, we, we don't like to, to kind of keep that in our day-to-day calculus, but, but those kinds of risks are, are definitely a, a part of the, the fabric of human history. So there's no reason fundamentally to think that, that they won't be going forward. Every, every decade or so over the last 60, 70 years, we've thought, well, now we've really got infectious diseases figured out. But, but evolution is relentless. It's very creative. It's very weird. If there are 8 billion of us, there's a lot of incentive for, for microbes to mutate and the ability to adapt, the ability to, to infect humans. I, to go back to the, to the, you know, the, the origins issue, I want to, I want to say it should be within the realm of discussion. It should never, as one of the other mistakes is to sort of demonize conversation about where the virus came from. I tend to think it was most likely of natural origin myself, partly because of, I think we're all shaped by our prior view of the world. And as a historian of infectious disease, I know that nature regularly does this. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I was I was in Santa Fe in May of 2019 at the Santa Fe Institute, and we had a little workshop, and we were talking about some of these big risks, and I was talking about the history of infectious disease, and I was talking to a, a virologist and said something to the effect of, I really think that highly pathogenic avian influenza is a threat for one of these really destructive, disruptive pandemics, which I still think is is one of the big risks. And he said, it was May of 2019, he said, yeah, he agreed, but he said, watch out for the coronaviruses. That's a family of virus that has repeatedly shown the ability to, to adapt, to infect humans, to cause severe disease. And the right one that just combines the the ability to transmit really easily and is hard to detect early on and causes bad disease hasn't happened yet, but it looks like it will. So, you know, I still think back to that conversation, what an amazing thing it was to, to realize that this particular family of viruses seem to have that potential. So there will be another, another one and it could be worse. I mean, the, the reality is that COVID-19 is very transmissible. It's really out on the edge. I mean, it's freakishly, I mean, now that you get into the Omicron, it is freakishly contagious. But the disease it causes is severe, but not epically severe. There's a lot worse stuff. It's not smallpox. And if you got something that was as destructive as smallpox and as contagious as COVID-19, it could be even more destabilizing. Now, maybe we would be more willing to lock down and get rid of it, but that would have huge consequences too. So the the space for something really catastrophic is still out there. We need to be preparing for, for the next one, which means preparing for it both in terms of the science, but also maybe in terms of our 
social response. The public health authorities have not always covered themselves in glory in the response. That starts with the the Chinese government's dishonesty at the very beginning. It goes on through the the kind of bumbling global response to the to the mistakes in the the U.S. government's response. Well, when so, you came to monkeypox, which is another one that just came out of the blue, we yeah. were super prepared. We'd actually created vaccines already. Did we have the capacity to actually put them in arms? Not at all. If it had yeah. spread more widely, I don't. I think we would have been completely screwed. The ability for a, an executive in a government to say, "Okay, all these rules are over. <laughs> all we have to." act now we have to act it's the ability to act quickly swiftly with real determination that that that's why i think in some ways the legacy of covid for johnson and for trump was in their favor in terms of expediting a fast track vaccine program that they really just threw their way behind which was turned out to be better for in both countries came before the Europeans could get their act together. But Carl, this has been an absolutely, I hope, I hope listeners feel the same way. I have been riveted. Maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm just fascinated by this topic because of my own life history, but I, I read La Peste long before I thought I was going to be subjected to three <laughs> plagues in my lifetime between HIV, monkeypox, and COVID. I expect probably another three before I'm dead. Uh, uh, but maybe not. Maybe we'll be all right. Maybe everything will be all right. Yes, keep telling us. You can use a little, you can use a little luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if we think we have another century to wait before it happens, I think we're deluding ourselves. I really do. If you want to understand our future, you got to understand the past. Read these books. Read The Fate of Rome. As, as just as a fascinating insight into history. And read Plagues Upon the Earth because it's a long and big book, but it's I mean, Carl, you were, I mean, I'm a writer. That's what I do for a living. You, you write beautifully. It's so easy to read. So I, I hate to be such a booster, but just please, if you're interested in this subject or if you're interested in the future, get a hold of these books. Carl, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And you hang in there and can't wait for your future work. And we will see you all, unless I'm completely stricken with pneumonia same time next week we'll see you all soon god bless <laughs>